All right, guys, it's a wee bit different today, if you can't tell. Uh, I have what they like to call the Rona, the one, the only vid 19. Uh, I have indeed contracted it. Uh, I will say it, it has not been that bad for me, at least not yet. Knock on wood. Um, you know, start out with a little bit of a cough. Then it became uh, some congestion and fatigue. Then it sort of morphed into now it's like sore throat and my voice sounds a little messed up. Um, but I was able to do my show the other day, able to do Crystal Kyle and Friends today. And boy, oh boy, do I have an amazing one for you today. So, you know, we talked about it back in the winter. We were this close to having uh, Dr. Jordan Peterson on the show. At the last minute, he had to back out because he had uh, a tour that he was doing and he had overbooked all these other things. And so they said, oh, I'm sorry, but we have to cancel. And, you know, we immediately followed up and said, ah, when can we have mom? We want to have mom whenever. And they said in the summer. So reached out to, to his team the other day. And to their credit, they got right back to me and said, look, well, let's do it. We'll do it this day. And I was like, okay, I'm in. Now, even though I have COVID-19, I don't care. If I had Ebola, I would still show up to try to, to, try to have this conversation uh, with Dr. Jordan Peterson. So I'm really looking forward to it. Um, as I've told you guys for a very long time, um, when it comes to psychology stuff, like when he's talking about Freud, Jung, um, various different schools of thought, like phenomenology or existentialism, when he talks about that stuff, I'm enamored. Like I, I love a lot of the stuff he says. I watched his entire 2017 lecture series and it was brilliant. So when he's talking about um, psychology, when he's talking about philosophy, I'm all in and I love it. Um, but then when we, you know, when we get to the topic of uh, politics and religion, oftentimes I find I have really sharp disagreements with him where I'm like, wow, this is a guy who I was just, I loved everything he said here and over here. I disagree with him on a lot, almost everything. And so that to me is the perfect situation where I want to have a conversation. Like I, I want to talk it out. I want to hear him out. I want to flesh out the ideas. I want to go back and forth because there's nothing more interesting than that. And so we're going to do that. We're going to get into it. I'll, I'll bring up some of the recent controversies that went on uh, with Twitter and, and Elliot Page. Uh, I'll bring up, you know, we'll talk about Trump. We'll talk about economics, basically anything that I can squeeze in, I will squeeze in in our limited time and uh, really looking forward to this. So everybody, please enjoy. Here's Dr. Jordan Peterson. Dr. Jordan Peterson, thank you so much for joining me. I really appreciate it. Um, we were close to doing it in the winter, but then, I mean, you have a very busy schedule and you had um, a whole tour that you were doing. And so we had to put it off to the summer, but Thank you again, because you're a man of your word. You said, hey, by the summer, we'll be able to do it. And, and you came through. So thanks for joining me. I'm pleased to do it. I'm glad we were able to arrange it. Yeah. So there's a bunch of stuff I want to talk to you about. Um, whenever I hear you talk about uh, psychology and philosophy, I'm always floored by it. I watched your entire 2017 lecture series. I basically feel like I was a student in the class. And um, I thought it was brilliant. Which one so, was that the, the maps of meaning or are they biblical lectures? Maps of meaning. Oh, yeah. And so where you went through all the different psychologists and, and their different philosophies. And um, so there's a bunch of stuff I want to ask you on that. And then later on, maybe we'll get into the more political and religious realm where we have uh, some disagreements. But let's start with this. Um, I took the, you know how you're always talking about the big five traits? Yeah. I, um, I took that test. Understand and, myself. What's that? 
the understand myself test? Yes, whatever the I think I just Googled like big five trait test or something. And whatever the first one that came up was I took and then it scores well, that you was probably a mistake, but that's okay. Oh, that's not the right test. Well, I have a test online at understandmyself.com and it's accurate and it gives you a good report and it details the five traits down to 10 aspects, two aspects okay. per trait. And if you have a partner and they do it, that gives you a couple's report too, that tells you why you'll fight and why you <laughs> need to, how you need to appreciate each other for similarities and differences. So anyways, so, it doesn't matter. Well, perhaps, perhaps I took uh, the wrong test, but on this particular test that I took, um, it said that I was very high in conscientiousness, moderately high in mm -hmm. agreeableness, which I was actually shocked by. I thought I was more disagreeable than agreeable, but apparently I'm not. Um, it says mm -hmm. I'm mm -hmm. somewhat low in openness, um, low in extroversion, and I'm very low in neuroticism. Mm -hmm. um, and so when I look at those traits, and correct me if I'm wrong, that strikes me like I, I lean more temperamentally conservative, but my politics are actually more left. So it seems to me like there's a little bit of a contradiction there. So can you speak on that a little bit? And then also tell me what your results are on that test. Yeah, well, generally, the best predictor of a more liberal orientation is high openness. Um, I, it's hard for me to believe that you're not extroverted or open given what you do. So I would say you should probably take a different test, although I don't know which one you took. And you might have taken a valid one. I, I can't mm. say for sure. Um, it, it's easy to put tests up. It's hard to make them valid. Um, yeah, generally speaking, the more entrepreneurial and creative types tend to lean more liberal. And the reason for that, and that's especially true if they're lower in conscientiousness, especially orderliness. And the reason for that seems to be that imagine that people might differ in their biologically predisposed attitude towards information flow and the flow of, of people as well. And the more conservative types are more concerned about the potential disruption and danger of novel ideas and new people. And there's good reason for that because new people and novel ideas can really flip the apple cart upside down. And whereas liberal people, more liberal people are energized and interested in the exchange of ideas and they are willing to take the risk of disruption to gain the benefit of novelty and and new learning and you can't say which one's right because sometimes new ideas are absolutely dreadfully destructive Karl Marx's ideas might be a good case in point they're they make sense once you accept a certain set of axioms but they're unbelievably destructive when implemented and so that deviation from tradition was an absolute catastrophe but then you know on the positive front well everybody's pretty happy they have electric lights that's not a political issue, obviously, but so sometimes if you welcome new ideas, you're right. And sometimes if you resist them, you're right. And that's partly why we have a political dialogue, right? So that we can adjudicate between these two different claims. Out of curiosity, would you say that there are any of Marx's ideas or any of his critiques of capitalism that you think have merit? Well, the idea that capitalism produces inequality is clearly true. But mm. Marx didn't think that up. I mean, that's been known forever. It says in the Gospels that the poor will always be with us. I mean, inequality is an unbelievably pervasive economic problem. The problem with Marx's critique, and the left-wingers should take this seriously, and I mean seriously, and they don't. So imagine that part of the reason that you're left-wing, I don't mean you specifically, but possibly you, because 
you're also somewhat higher in compassion, you said, in agreeableness. The lefties are concerned about the detrimental effects of inequality, say unequal distribution of capital and financial resources in particular, although there's all sorts of inequalities of distribution. And they are right to be concerned about that because when equality becomes excessive, it tends to destabilize societies. So we know, for example, that in neighborhoods where movement up the socioeconomic hierarchy is blocked and difficult, and there's quite an extreme range between poor and rich, that young men tend to become violent because that's one of the ways they can attain status when they can't attain it in a legitimate, let's say, and productive status competition. And so, and every society that's ever existed have, has had to deal with the potential negative consequences of inequality. So back in Old Testament times, the Hebrews had a jubilee every seven years. I think it was the jubilee, but it doesn't matter. Um, where debts were erased mm. and forgiven. And the reason for that was that capital wealth tends to accumulate in the hands of a smaller and smaller number of people. Now, Marx was right in that diagnosis, although he did not, he was not the originator of that idea by any stretch of the imagination. But laying at the feet of capitalism is, it's preposterous and it understates the magnitude of the problem. Because if you're concerned about inequality, and there are reasons to be concerned in, in an intelligent manner, then you want to get the diagnosis right. And if you blame it on capitalism, you've got the diagnosis wrong, because every economic system ever devised by human beings has produced inequality. But only one has produced an increase in material prosperity, especially for poor people, and that's free market capitalism. So. The lefties who follow Marx because they're concerned about inequality are guilty of the sin of not taking the problem that's cardinal to them with anywhere near the requisite degree of seriousness. Inequality is a way deeper problem than, than mere capitalism. And getting rid of capitalism is, you think what, you think the Soviet Union or Maoist China was egalitarian? It was just as unequal, so is Cuba. And so is Venezuela. I mean, these places that purport to be egalitarian are anything but. It's the problem of inequality is very, very deep problem. So, yeah. So uh, Marx all, was I, right to point to it as a problem, mm, but completely wrong in his diagnosis. Right. I mean, I accept a lot of what you say there, and you know, a lot of the governments you brought up, like Venezuela, for example, I would definitely categorize them as authoritarian and and not egalitarian. But to accept your premise further here, when you talk about capitalism, um you know, that inequality is going to exist no matter what system we're under is effectively the argument. How would you respond to the point that there have been times throughout U.S. history where that inequality has been significantly less, and then that also led to what was called the golden age of economic expansion in the U.S.? So, for example, uh, under FDR and the New Deal, um, they did a lot of redistribution of wealth through social programs. A lot of these New Deal projects uh, had shovel-ready jobs and they put the country to work in the midst of the Great Depression, and they also increased taxes on the wealthy, for example. Um, do you look at a model like that and think it makes sense? In other words, like a, a regulated version of capitalism as opposed to capitalism? Well, there has to be. There has to be regulations. Okay. There, there mm -hmm. has to be. There has to be a, a system of law in place for a free market to even work. Right. I mean, so for example, so the you have to be guaranteed property rights, for example. You have to be guaranteed freedom of association. 
you have to be treated as if you have intrinsic worth. All of those things have to be enshrined in law. So you need an underlying operating system in some sense that's axiomatic and constitutional in order for a free market economy to even get off the ground. And we don't exactly know what those prerequisites are. Some of them appear to be theological and some of them appear to be philosophical and, and legal. So the theological presuppositions would be what the, what the founders of the American enterprise were referring to when they said that they held these truths to be self-evident. And so, hmm. and those self-evident truths had to do with the dignity and value of each individual and their intrinsic worth before the law and say in some sense before God. And the self-evidence of that is a consequence of a theological underpinning. And then out of that arises a constitutional framework that guarantees people the liberty and autonomy and, and security, especially with regards to property rights, that enables free enterprise and the acquisition of wealth to begin. And that would also um, involve prohibitions against arbitrary seizure of, well, of property. So, right. Because otherwise, see, if some people, if, if we set up a system where no one can get rich, like exceptionally rich, let's say, we also set up a system where no one can, where everyone can't become wealthy. Some people have to become wealthy first. You know that already, you know, like when something like flat screen TVs were introduced or, or uh, cell phones for that matter, for the first cell phones, for the first five years, they were the playthings of extremely wealthy billionaires. And the reason for that was the technology was extremely expensive to begin with. And unless there was a market that was supplied by people with excess capital, there, the marketing of the product couldn't have begun and the price couldn't have been lowered. That's true, but didn't NASA also do a lot of the original investing that gave us the internet? Wasn't the yeah, space program sure. responsible for a lot of the original? So in other words, it's, it's sure. sort of a hybrid of both public and private sector. Yeah, well, you see that hybrid model in places like Canada. You see it and in places like, like the Scandinavian countries. But we should Correct. point out with regard to the Scandinavian countries that mm. if you look at international rankings of the degree to which it is easy to do business in a given country, right. the Scandinavian countries constantly rank in the top 10 or 20. And That's so they true. have a... They have a social net put in place, but they're mm -hmm. fundamentally free market capitalist economies. So, and you know, we have to fight all the time about the balance between providing people with equality of opportunity and also providing them with the requisite security that also aids and abets that. So, mm. here's an example. So, Canada has a, a healthcare system that's more socialized than the system in the U.S., and there are some advantages and disadvantages to that. Canada spends less on hospital administration than the US does. So that's an interesting and somewhat unexpected fact. We ration healthcare in Canada by waiting times and it can be quite brutal. So my daughter, for example, had to get uh, her ankle replaced at one point and the waiting list in Canada was three years. And she was walking around with a broken ankle. So three years was untenable. So there, it's rationed by waiting time in a manner analogous to the manner in which healthcare is rationed by wealth in countries that have a less socialized system. Correct. However, yeah. mm -hmm. it's also the case that Canada has a higher per capita entrepreneurial rate than the US. And one of the reasons for that appears to be that people can step outside of their 
their current jobs and the security that those jobs offer them and undertake the risk of establishing a new venture because they don't have to worry that their family now has lost its healthcare security. Mm -hmm. So these things are complicated, right? They have to be dealt with on a, in some sense at a detailed level and on a case by case basis. But if you want to point to the Scandinavian countries, what you see there is, well, a, a, a free market capitalist framework with a constitutional underpinning, and then some argument about how much of a social security net can be cast out of that free enterprise web to provide people with a reasonable amount of security. Yeah, you know, I'm, I'm very interested to hear you say this, Dr. Peterson, because I do think it flies in the face of how a lot of people, myself included, maybe, uh, viewed your politics, because... Yeah, well, that's because I often, people generally don't have any idea what I think because they just make I assumptions mean, based on idiot journalists, and that's the end of that. I mean, I guess that's a fair point because, um, like, I, I often mention the Scandinavian countries in many respects as it, sort of an ideal. Like, I like social democracy and that I think it's a healthy mix of socialism and capitalism. And I like the idea of thinking of an ideal government as trying to create a better meritocracy. And in order for there to be a better meritocracy, I think in a civilized society, you can take certain things off the table. You can take healthcare off the table. You can take education off the table. Um, and it, I mean, look at it this way. If we're having a hundred yard dash, I kind of want everybody to start at the same place. Whereas oftentimes- No, you, do, you don't want them to start at the same place. Why is you that? want to start them with the same lack of barriers to their movement forward. So that's, that's a negative that's not rights, the same thing. Do you believe in any positive rights too? Because we all agree there are negative liberties of the government needs to leave me the hell alone in these respects. But aren't there also some positive rights? Isn't there a right to health care, for example? No, there's no right to health care. There's so you no don't right agree with to that. food. So do you well, prefer the US right system to, to, to the socialized medicine systems to single payer healthcare countries? Well, let's start with the first question first with regard okay. to positive rights. Mm -hmm. It's very rare that you have a right that requires someone else to provide it for you. Yeah, but they, they so, have that in France, for example. They have a right to health care in their constitution. Well, right? they, they arguably have that right. I mean, mm -hmm. it depends. First of all, I don't like the French civil system. I think it's a catastrophe. Well, it's a Western catastrophe, so it's not that big a catastrophe, but it's nothing. It, it has virtually no merit compared to the English common law system. And I don't think the French civil system would have been possible without the English common law system having been there first. And under English common law, you have all the rights there are. They're not granted to you by the government. They're an intrinsic part of your being and a necessary corrective to the overreach of the state. And those are only delimited by necessity when people engage in conflict. And then that conflict is adjudicated in the English common law system, precedent by precedent. And what would you call negotiation as to the borders of rights are undertaken at the level of extreme high detail. And that's a brilliant system. The French suffer from the same delusion. They've always suffered from this delusion, this French intellectual delusion that intellect and central planning can, can, can substitute for increment, the incremental movement of free market systems, including free market systems in the, in the area of jurisprudence. And that's just not the case. And the idea that you have a right to healthcare is like, well, who's gonna provide it? You're gonna force doctors to do that? And how are you going to do that exactly? With force. And so, so every, I'm not saying that healthcare has... isn't desirable. Mm -hmm. Yeah, but it's the right issue here. That's what we're talking about. We're not talking about whether or not the government can and should intervene so that a healthcare 
minimum is provided to the populace at large. That's a different issue. The issue here is the issue of right. And rights are very, you don't want to multiply rights beyond necessity because every right that you multiply puts the onus of responsibility on everyone as well. They're not, they're not cost free. And so what constitute rights is a very difficult thing to determine. I'm also not a fan of bills of rights. I think they're generally a mistake. Really? I like the English system much better. Yeah, so, absolutely. So like the Bill of because Rights. Because the idea problem with like that? Not particularly. No, I think it's an wow. inelegant okay. solution. And the reason for mm. that is that under the English common law system from which the Bill of Rights was derived, you have all the rights there are. Whereas under a French civil system, which is and, and that derivative of that is the American Bill of Rights, the government grants you the rights. And I don't believe the government grants you rights. I don't think that's how it works. I don't think rights are a secondary derivative of a social contract. That's a that's wrong way of does. looking at it because it, it makes the government and the social contract the source of the rights. And I think that's a big mistake. So, so you're not a fan of basically any positive rights. You think we have negative rights and that's basically the end of it, correct? Well, you'd have to tell me exactly what positive rights you're thinking about. I don't believe that you have a right to healthcare, even though obviously the more healthcare we can provide to people in the most efficient possible manner, the better that is for everyone. Now, healthcare is a tricky one because it's, a, it's an unlimited domain because almost everything can be shoehorned into the category of health. And so that's also a problem with regards to, let's say, delimiting what might constitute the right. I mean, you have a right to healthcare, you have a right to mental health, you have a right to physical health. Well, of course you don't, obviously not. How could you possibly have a right to those things? no more than you have a right to food. It takes effort and time to produce food and it takes effort and time for people to care for you. And so there's no, there's no right to, there's no right to that. Well, I guess when I'm talking about it, I'm just referring to it as a matter of funding. So do we mm -hmm. have private companies that are interested in profit being the ones who provide the care or do we have it as a matter of public funding? So instead of our tax dollars going to, I don't know, war, corporate bailouts, et cetera, our tax dollars would go towards funding people's health. Well, I can tell you what can Canadians do when they're in a, Can in a healthcare crisis. Mm. If they have money, they go mm -hmm. to the States. It and also so works the other way too, though. There are people I know, who go I know, to I single payer that. countries because they can't afford healthcare here, right? I know. That's why I said right. that it was people with money that did it. Right. Right. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. I, I didn't say everyone could do it and they can't, but, but when push comes to shove, you want to think very hard about whether you want to be in a situation where you cannot, no matter what resources you have at your disposal, get timely treatment for your wife's cancer. That's true. But to your point before, uh, we do a wallet biopsy here. So you're rationing care by one metric or another. The question is, do you, do you ration it based on need or do you ration it based on Wealth. You can't ration it based on need. You can't ration anything based on need. And that's another misapprehension on the Marxist side. Who the hell determines need? How in the world do you well, determine need? Somebody like, bleeding how do you out in the emergency what? room, I think they take precedence. That's though. a facile answer. Is it? I'm asking a serious question. I thought I was given a serious answer. No, you're not. Because there's when you're trying to parcel out need, mm. you're dealing with multiple serious existential catastrophes simultaneously. And we don't know how to adjudicate the provision of resources based on need. You know, so 
I can give you an example of that. Imagine you have a kid who's a single parent, mother, minority, um, deprived family, unbelievably academically gifted and capable of benefiting from a high quality publicly funded education. Or you have a kid who's got a form of cancer that is likely to be painful and produce protracted suffering over a lengthy period of time. You've got a finite pool of money. How in the world do you adjudicate between those two situations? And the answer is you can't. And that's only two situations, not the million situations that actually exist. And the way we do adjudicate between those situations is we use money. That is the mechanism for adjudication. And you might say, well, it produces all sorts of unfair consequences. And the response to that is, yeah, that's for sure. But that's not the issue. The issue is well, what makes you think you can do better? And there is no evidence that you can do better. And so the idea that need should take precedence, like that's, that's fine in principle, although it's not. Who in the world could possibly adjudicate need? You know, and that's what they tried to do with the central planning committees in the Soviet Union when they were trying to make pricing decisions. And sometimes the Soviet central planners had to make like 5,000 pricing decisions a day. And they were trying to adjudicate need. Do we need more nails or do we need more hypodermic needles? Well, how in the world, and that's like two decisions, not 5,000. How in the world are you possibly going to compute that? And this is, this is the other problem that the Marxists have in particular. The free market system is a giant compute, computational device, distributed computational device involving billions of calculations per second, trying to compute the transforming horizon of the future. And it can't be replaced by central planning, not even in principle. But don't you think there are some issues with that because profit's at the core of it? So just to push back a little bit, a study came out, Scientific American reported on this recently. If the United States had a universal healthcare system, like Canada, for example, during the COVID-19 pandemic, 330,000 more lives could have been saved. So in some ways, I agree. Well, that the free I, I listen to a study like that, efficient. and I think no one, no one in the world, no, there's no one in the world who can possibly produce a study like that with valid outcomes. You don't so, think that? That's and the fact that empirical? Scientific American reported it, not in the least. I've done really? 150. I've done 100 published studies. I know exactly mm. how they work. And there's no possible way that you can produce a scientific study with that kind of conclusion, not unless you build it in from the beginning. There's too many variables to take into account. So, and we're not also debating whether or not in some circumstances, a public healthcare system is a desirable good. That, that's something that needs to be discussed at the level of detail. Mm. There may be situations where it's an entirely good. I'm telling you some of the downsides. One of the downsides, I'm telling you what happens in Canada is that if you're in a dire situation, it's not like having to wait two years. My dad waited two years for knee replacement, two and a half years, that was exacerbated by COVID. It's not like that isn't expensive. He couldn't move. That's expensive. It cost him money. And there was nothing we could do about it. He was too elderly to be taken down to the States. It was too logistically complex. And so he was basically crippled for two years. Now that's, that's costly. And you think, well, it's not money. It's like, yes, it is. It's money and time. 
Now, lots of people in Canada are talking about a hybrid private public model, and that would have to be done experimentally and locally and carefully to see what the advantages and disadvantages would be. And the metrics would have to be established properly, right? So you have to figure out what it is you're trying to measure. Wait times might be one of them because wait times are basically a proxy for expense. Now, I already said the Canadian public health system seems to be more efficient than the American system in some ways because American hospitals spend about 30% of their budget collecting money, right? Because having to keep track of everything that's being uh, offered, having to charge for that, it's actually a tremendous administrative burden. And that does seem to be somewhat lessened, for example, in the Canadian system. And the big problem with the Canadian system, first of all, we don't know if it's sustainable. That's a problem. But the wait times are catastrophic and it's chronically underfunded. Now, that may be an intractable problem because healthcare has an infinite Healthcare has an infinite demand, right? Because people will pretty much spend everything they have yeah. if they're dying. I mean, I would just say we have wait times here too, because 45,000 people die every year in the US because they don't have healthcare. That's a wait yeah, line that's littered with dead bodies. So that's I'm not like a making the case. Line. I'm not making the case that the American system is preferable to the Canadian system. I haven't okay. made that case. Okay. So I'm saying that we don't exactly know how to negotiate this going forward. The part of it now, there are some people in the US that face terrible wait times and can't get access to hospitals at all. Mm. I'm saying that there are people in the US who don't face that and everyone in Canada faces it. And it doesn't seem right. to me the least bit reasonable that if I have excess resources, even those that could be devoted to subsidizing the health care for poorer people, if I was willing to pay a premium for more rapid health care delivery, and one of the consequences of that, that would be that I would subsidize with my own funds the surgery or medical treatment of someone who was in more dire economic straits. Why shouldn't I be allowed to do that? Why not set up the system so that both of those would be possible? Like this arbitrary idea that, well, it's got to be public or it's got to be private. It's like, well, no, first of all, healthcare isn't one thing. It's 300,000 things, each of them differentiable and complicated and each of them negotiated necessarily by people who are wise at a level of detail. And then to work out, and with regard to these Scandinavian countries, these models, you have to remember, these countries have fewer people than some of your cities. They're very homogenous societies. They're much simpler societies than the US, mm. which is just like staggeringly complex, complex, complex society. And so a lot of the solutions that work in Scandinavia, it's not obvious that they'll scale to a country the size of the US. Maybe they'd scale at the state level, possibly. And, you know, some of your states are experimenting with more left-wing approaches to problems of education and healthcare and so forth. And good, that's another big advantage to the U.S. system is that because you have a federated system and the states have a fair bit of autonomy, you can run experiments at the local level and see what works if you get your metrics right. I mean, that's complicated, but it's definitely mm. advantageous. That's a free market system, too. It's just a free market system of states. So let's... Um... Let's move on from healthcare. I don't want to get bogged down in healthcare. It wasn't my intent for us to go 30 minutes on this, but because there, there's so many other things I want to talk to you about. Um, let's, let's go real simple here. If you were an American citizen, you were here in the 2020 election, would you have voted for Trump, Biden, nobody, or a third party candidate? I don't know. You know, you do, it's very hard to answer those questions until you're actually in the situation. When Clinton was facing off against Trump, for a very long time, I felt that I would have voted for Clinton. 
I felt that she had the at least the administrative background and the governmental experience to know what the job was and to handle it. I felt that Trump was a wild card, which he most definitely was. Then I went to this, <laughs> the night of the election, I went to this Republican gala in Canada at a private club uh, watching the election and they did a straw vote there. And in the straw vote, I cast my vote for Trump. And that surprised me. And it was something I sort of switched on last minute. And the reason I switched, I would say, is because I thought Clinton betrayed the working class. In fact, that's why she lost the election. It isn't something I just felt. That's definitely what happened. And so I thought, to hell with you. You know, I'd rather have this wild card in here with his spontaneous lies than have you in here with your programmatic, powered, mad, driven, uh, pre-authorized lies. And so I don't know. It's hard to tell what you do in a situation until you're actually in it. Do you think Trump as president in his four years also betrayed the working class? Um, not in the same manner, no. Really? And I think Trump did some things that were really quite spectacular. Uh, like one what? of them. Like what? Well, how about no war? Well, he did assassinate a top Iranian commander no, 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 who was no. fighting I ISIS I didn't on the say, ground. Say that about, I didn't say anything about assassination. I said something very specific. Yeah. You, I would say Trump that's an act of not, war. No, it's not an act of war. It's an assassination. To, an act to of kill war an Iranian involves, commander? I don't understand the point you're making. Well, I'm trying to say if, in Iran, if the Iranians killed one of our generals, we would call that an act of war. We do it to them and it's not an act of war? All right, then I guess we have to differentiate between an act of war and a war. What you have right now with Russia, that's a war. And yeah, Trump I, did not engage the U.S. in a war of that sort. And so that was a signal contribution. He also established the Abrahamic Accords, which have got nowhere near enough attention, not near the attention they deserve. And, and the people who negotiated that should have won a Nobel Peace Prize, because that brings the possibility of peace to the Middle East. And that, consider, was a big, that was a big accomplishment, both of those things. Do you consider the, the giant increase in drone strikes under Trump problematic? What do you mean problematic? You mean desirable? Do, do you Because you said, oh, he didn't get us in a new war, but I would consider all those bombings, which are illegal, by the way, an act of war. Do you think I didn't that those say that are... Trump, I didn't say that Trump's record was unblemished mm. or that there weren't skirmishes of various sorts. I'm not trying to paint him... Uh, I'm not trying to paint him beige and, or I'm not trying to whitewash him. I'm perfectly aware of Trump's flaws and his advantages, but he didn't embroil the US in a war. And you guys have been embroiled in a pointless war for, for what, how long now? Since the 1960s, one after uh, another. And then the yeah. Abraham <laughs> Accords are a big deal. And so, and did he betray the working class? Well, I think that's in some sense a vague, it's a vague question. Hillary definitely betrayed the working class because she decided to go with the woke mob instead of her typical, in typical, instead of the typical base of power well, that the Democrats had always relied on. So can I give that you was an a example? Decision. Can I give sure. you an example on Trump betraying the working class? Because there's a few things you could point to. First of all, there was uh, net outsourcing of jobs under his administration when he campaigned as the opposite. The second thing is his number one legislative accomplishment was a 2017 tax cut where 83% of the benefits went to the top 1%. So those are two examples of you know, he campaigned as the anti-outsourcing guy, then there was net outsourcing under his administration. And in fact, that same tax bill incentivized outsourcing. And then again, that tax bill mostly benefited the wealthy, 
and it didn't help the working class. So that's what I mean by betraying the working class. I think he campaigned in a very populist way, but in terms of how he governed, it was very sort of standard establishment Republican, just like George W. Bush, for example. Yeah, well, I don't have any real comments on that. Like I said, I'm not trying to whitewash the Trump administration. I'm just pointing to a couple of the things that he did that mm. he hasn't got credit for. Yeah, you should have him, got credit for. I actually enjoyed you were on the PBD podcast, I think it was recently, and you made a comment that you found Trump whiny, particularly over the, you know, common refrain that he can't stop saying he thinks the election was stolen. And well, correct I me if I'm wrong, but your commentary well, was like, move on. Well, I think I think it's a strategic error on his part, at minimum. I mean, Trump portrays himself and thinks of himself as a winner. And part of his attractiveness on the populist front was his unabashed, victorious persona, let's say. And he's the guy that gets things done and he's the guy that wins. But apparently the election was stolen from him. And so that begs the question, are you the winner and the guy that gets things done or are you the guy that lets things be stolen from you? <laughs> and the answer that Trump had always had was, well, I'm not the guy, I'm not that guy. I don't know who else I am, but I'm definitely the winner here. And I think that now campaigning as if he was the uh, victim, let's say, of a plot isn't going to do him any good. I think it was probably a fatal decision from a strategic perspective because mm. it's so off-brand. And that has nothing, that's completely independent of whatever virtue the argument about the stolen election might have. Well, I don't believe that the, that the judiciary in the United States is so corrupt that the, the possibility of a valid finding on the election fraud front has been reduced to zero. I don't find that credible. And, and I do think, so I also think that that's, it's a mistake on that front. And it's a mistake for conservatives. It's a real mistake for conservatives to take that route because conservatives can't say all the institutions are corrupt and untrustworthy. That's what the radical leftists say. And populist conservatives tend to do that. And that really leaves them with nothing except maybe an appeal to public whim. And that's no way to govern. So I think that was a mistake too. Mm. Uh you know, you in your commentary, I do often hear a strong defense um, of our institutions. And I do feel like one of the common things that defines the current political era is definitely populism that bubbles up on the left uh, through the vessel of, say, a Bernie Sanders, and even what I would argue was a fake populism that came up on the right with Donald Trump, where the agreement does seem to be, well, hold on, these institutions are really not working for us, and they're broken and they're fundamentally corrupt. And you know the genesis of it being, you have this donor class of corporations and billionaires that donates to politicians, and then they get elected and do the bidding of that donor class and the, and the corporations. Um, mm -hmm. Do you disagree with that analysis? Do you think that that's just overstating well, the problem and the institutions well, are actually I, healthy or? Well, uh, I think it's partly a Tower of Babel problem. So I've been listening a fair bit to Russell Brand, who I quite like. Mm. Russell is very, very smart. He's definitely one of the smartest people I've ever met. He's unbelievably sharp. And he differs in his political utterances from me to a substantial degree, although there's a fair bit of commonality as well. He's more, he's beating the anti-capitalism drum in a manner that I tend not to. But there's a specific reason for that. And the reason is that 
Russell has realized that size is a problem. And you know, the, the lefties tend to be skeptical of big government and the right-wingers tend to be, sorry, the lefties tend to be skeptical of big, big companies right. and the right-wingers tend to be skeptical of big government. Right. And I think the right way forward through all that mess is that we should be skeptical of big. You know, mm. back in 2008, there was this mantra that was what passed down from on high, too big to fail. And that was not only wrong, but anti-true. So something anti-true is literally the opposite of what's true, not just a lie, not just a misstatement. And the real, um, the proper response to the 2008 crisis should have been so big that it inevitably must fail. Mm. And so when people are skeptical of institutions, that the skepticism should be levied somewhat more carefully at two in two ways. One should be, while well, all institutions tend towards anachronism and corruption as they age, and they have to be constantly updated. So you have a civic responsibility to attend to the organizations of your society. So local organizations, political parties, churches, uh, business organizations in your community, you should be a member of those and participating in them to improve them. And that's just the lot of mankind. The, old dead uncle as a very common mythological motif. And then the other problem is the problem of scale. And it seems highly probable that once institutions reach a certain magnitude, the, their mere size tilts them towards an authoritarian egotism that's dangerous. Mm. And so I can't see why the right and the left can't agree on this, that what we have here is a problem of scale. So would you have responded to that 2008 crash by breaking up the big banks? Because that, I is, don't something, know. I don't that know. is something because the right and the left do agree on. Anti-monopolists would agree on that. Yeah, well, I mean, I, I have an objection in principle to mm. overweening and large. I don't like centralized organizations. Right. I think they're inefficient and authoritarian. And I don't know what I would have done in that specific situation because generally in complex circumstances like that the devil's in the details but but hey, do, you have, do you have any thoughts on the bailouts in in 08 um any thoughts yeah like how basically the government came in rushed in propped up wall street as everything was crumbling and sort of yeah, left well, the again, homeowners to again, fend for themselves well that you know it seems to me that the money went to the wrong people i right. think it would have been a lot more it would have been more difficult to prop up the mortgage holders. It would have had the same effect eventually on the banks. So I think that, yeah, the, 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 there's a fascist element to that. Eh? So fascism, mm. fascism, the word is derived from the word fascists, and that means to bind together. And so fascism is the unholy alliance, let's say, of media, corporation, and government. And I think that 2008 bailouts, like so much of the globalist idiocy that pervades our society today, is essentially fascist in its nature. And I think that's extremely unfortunate and extremely dangerous. So, you know, the 2008 financial crisis was a strange bird because it was the consequence of a brilliant technological innovation. And no one expected the consequences of that innovation to be as dramatic as they were. So basically what happened was that, you know, every mortgage has a risk, right? And some people are rated 
less risky than others. So you can imagine each mortgage has a specific risk. Then you could imagine bundling together mortgages of a certain risk, maybe a 2%, 3% default rate on average, bundle a thousand of them together, you average across the risk statistically. And then theoretically, you can discount the risk. And that was the idea of putting these mortgage tranches together, bundle risky investments together, stabilize the risk, offset it financially, and sell the resulting tranche, the, the grouping. Brilliant, bloody brilliant idea. But what no one expected was that linking mortgages together like that would link housing prices together across the entire country. Right. But no one saw that coming, eh? So, and they were subprime, so they shouldn't have really yeah, been giving but, out those loans well, in the first place. Well, that's you know? hard to say. No, no, that's hard to say. You don't want to say that too quickly because remember that for decades before that, it had been government policy on the left and on the right to try to facilitate the purchase of homes by people who, were, who weren't doing so well economically. And what that meant that was, was that mortgages were going to be extended to people who, are higher, who had a higher credit risk. And part of the purpose of aggregating the mortgages, mortgages together in these tranches was to decrease that risk so that more people could have houses. Now, you could argue that it was a bad idea to try to ensure that people who are economically unsustainable or unreliable for whatever reason had access to enough money to buy a house. That's a different issue. But both yeah. the Democrats and the Republicans decided that that was a good idea. And, and a big issue is the ratings agencies lied because they were bought off. So they would say, oh, these are rated AAA, which means they're the safest investment you can do, when very clearly on its face, it was not a safe investment. Well, it was a risky were, investment. They, well, they looked safe to begin with, because when they, bundled the, when they bundled the mortgages together, they did discount the risk. But what happened, this is another unexpected consequence, say, is once the risk was lowered, the banks were incentivized to take on even more risky mortgages because they believed they could now discount the risk. And then that just got out of control. Yeah, and some of played. that was corruption, obviously, and some of it yeah. was, and some of it was collusion with the rating agencies. But you also have to understand that running a rating agency is no simple matter. And if you're smart enough to rate the reliability of investments, you're smart enough to go develop your own investment portfolio and make a fortune on your own. And so the regulators are always going to be paying, the regulators are always going to be playing a losing catch-up game with the real financial geniuses and innovators. Well, they, they were paid by the people they were supposed to be rating. So there was a conflict yeah, well, of interest a, right. that where yeah. they, were, they were incentivized to say, oh yeah, these are rated AAA. And really it was just a big ruse. People were playing hot potato well, with very toxic it assets. It wasn't just a big ruse. There's a moral hazard there and it's not trivial, mm. right? I mean, the, the, you shouldn't, you sh your raters should be independent, obviously. And so your point's well taken there. But there were many factors that went into that catastrophe. And some of them weren't, you, you, can't, you can't chalk it all up to corruption. And I wouldn't because it was complicated. And like I said, that bundle, bundling the mortgages together, that was a really smart idea. And no one really did think that, because the theory was that housing prices across the country were going to remain uncorrelated. And they always had. It wasn't until the mortgages were linked together with these new financial instruments that housing prices started to move in sync and that's what sunk the market but mm. no one no one saw that coming see that's remember at the beginning of the conversation we were talking about the danger of new ideas mm. you present an idea like that and you say look we figured out a way to specify risk and to decrease the investment risk of 
loans given to people who are less financially stable. Jesus, everybody be clapping about that because it means you can get poor people into houses. But then the unintended consequence was the whole housing market collapsed. No one yeah. saw that coming. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I guess I, I struggle with that in this sense. I don't want to presuppose an end of history analysis where we assume that we already sort of maxed out on our potential in a sense. So we always have to be open to new ideas. It's just they have to be intelligent new ideas that are that can be tested and verified. Yeah, well, that's the big just. Of course, you yeah. Know, that's all, are, all the devils in those details. I agree. Yeah. Well, um, that's also why we have free speech, by the way. Is so correct, that we can, yeah. We can and I'm, test these ideas before we implement them in principle. I'm as staunch a defender of that uh, as you can get. In fact, while we uh, talk about that, uh, so I noticed just the other day you were banned from Twitter. Now, you know, I'm somebody, nobody can argue against my lefty credentials. Everybody knows um, I'm a man of the left. Having said that, my, my solution on this issue of social media censorship has always been, look, we need to expand First Amendment protections. And the way you do that is to regulate these big social media companies like their public utilities. So if you do that, then you, you know, basically you're saying this is the new public square and people can speak their mind here. Now, that doesn't mean, of course, you can't, you know, dox people or do direct threats of violence or anything like anything that's actually illegal will remain illegal. But outside of that, you can't censor people just based on um, political opinion. So, you know, I definitely wouldn't have banned you, suspended you, et cetera. But I do have a question about that specific tweet that did get you in trouble because, you know, you said something to the effect of, um, well, I don't know if it got me in trouble. You know, I don't think I'm in trouble. Twitter banned me, but I don't consider well, that trouble. That's <laughs> fair enough. Fair point. Um, but you said something to the effect of, remember when pride was a sin and um, mm -hmm. uh, the criminal physician. And Ellen Page just had her breasts cut off by a criminal physician. Criminal physician, exactly. So my question is, is the physician really criminal? If you agree that adults can decide to transition, then why would the physician be criminal? Don't adults have that right if they want to transition? Not everything legal isn't criminal. And do they have that right? See, I would have left Ellen Page alone if she hadn't been parading her new abs in a fashion magazine. How many kids do you think she can convince to convert? A one? Yeah. Thousand? No, not See, yeah. I, no, no, really. I want to I respond to that. I think that with the trans community, it's very similar to the gay community where back when that first became a big issue, people thought, oh, if we talk about it, if it's in magazines or whatever, we're promoting kids to go down that path. But really what happened is people are who they are. And that if they're gay, they just decided to be no. like, yeah, I'm gay. And they were just more open and honest with themselves. So I don't think you're promoting people to do that. No, that's you're just not saying, what happened. If you they are that, it's okay. Wrong. Okay, well, You're I'm, utterly I'm, I'm wrong. listening. There's I'm nothing listening. about that that's right. So I explain. Well, there's been an absolute look. One of the reasons that I opposed Bill C-16 in Canada to begin with, this pronoun compelled speech bill, was because I knew perfectly well what was going to happen when we introduced confusion about gender identity into the public sphere. Now, the argument was that if we left people with gender dysphoria alone to make their own way, and stop torturing them, that we would decrease the mental health load on those individuals. And my analysis as a clinician was that for every one person of that sort that we hypothetically saved, we doom a thousand more. 
as a consequence of confusion and social contagion. I knew the literature on psychogenic epidemics. They used to call that mass hysteria. And it's a literature that goes back about 300 years. And whenever you introduce, often when you introduce social confusion, you can produce a psychogenic epidemic, especially among, generally it's adolescent females who are most susceptible to it. So I thought, oh, well, what's going to happen is we'll produce a psychogenic epidemic of gender dysphoria among adolescent females. And that is exactly what's happened. And it isn't the fact that we've freed up people who are, what, in doubt about their identity to be who they are. That may have happened in a tiny minority of cases. It's absolutely and definitely the case that we've doomed thousands of kids to brutal, mutilating surgery and premature sterility. And we've done that on the altar of our hypothetical moral virtue and compassion. Look, I read a car corporate analysis of the trans surgery industry last week, growth rate projection for you lefty types and your anti-corporatism, growth rate projection, 15% per year, invest now at $350 million business as of 2022, projected to expand to 750 million by 2027. No moral hazard there. There's plenty of moral hazard what? there. What and that surgery is absolutely brutal. So what percentage of the population do you think, uh, in your conception of how this is unfolding, what percentage of the population do you think is going to end up being trans at the end of this? Do you think like oh, one day it's going to be like 70% of the we know country is trans? That, well, we know already that about one in five adolescents now identifies, to use that hated word, identifies as part of the hypothetical LGBTQ plus community. So it's one in five. I don't know what the upper limit is. There's a consulting group in the UK now that's claiming there's 150 different genders. There's actually, I suppose, 7 billion different genders if you want to get technical about it because everybody's temperament differs. But I don't know what the upper limit is. And I have no idea what the upper doesn't limit it, is for this surgical intervention. We'll see. Doesn't but that... I, don't find it, I, I don't find it the least bit acceptable. And if you think that your compassion is demanding that you extend your... Uh, pity to the LGBTQ plus community at the cost of sterilizing children, you should think again. You're on the wrong side of this and not Wait, in a trivial on. way. Don't, I, I, I would appreciate if you don't ascribe beliefs to me that I don't have. Remember, my original question was well, about- Well, you said earlier in well, this I said, question that, I said, that you Elliot were, Page is an adult. And so do you think that he has the right to yeah, transition? But the, that was the original question. You made question. some comments after that. Yeah, but as a star mm -hmm. and a public figure and a model for emulation, mm -hmm. she also has the responsibility not to entice confused adolescents into a catastrophic decision before they have the maturity to make that decision. I just have to say, Jordan, I think it's a little bit of a moral panic. I just don't see some sort of, you know, frenzy of okay, what people would you consider to become trans. What, first of all, that's a hell of a way to put it. What? Is, Why don't you that... take a look at the increase in, in surgical interventions and see what you think? I mean, how many do you think well, is too many? Again, how many is, wait, look, the, if we're talking about I'll, I'll suffering... answer your question. I'll answer your question. The argument is it, it used to be very repressed because that's very outside of the tradition and the norm and the standard. And that now when what you sort of let the be, boot off the neck a little bit. Suppressed? What used to be suppressed? All the, exactly. the entire LGBTQ community. I mean, it was very recently we okay, even got gay all, marriage in the a, United States. First of all, they're not a community. 
Well, you understand what is the point this I'm community? making. No, I'm, no, actually, neither I understand it nor you. And that's why we're delving into it. <laughs> First of all, they're not a community. That's just a catchphrase. It's a buzzword. And I'll tell you something else, that almost all the kids who are undergoing surgical intervention, the clinical literature is absolutely clear on this. 80% of kids with gender dysphoria identify as homosexual when they mature. 80%. And that means the vast majority of people who are being converted surgically are gay. Now, how is that an advantage to the gay community precisely? No, see, I'm not, I'm not taking a position in any way, shape or form on the kids because I don't know the well, first you thing about this to comment on the kids. Well, but see, that's why we're having this conversation though is because my original question was about kids. the adults and what your take is on the adults. Hmm. And it sounds to me like, let me ask you guys, would you ban transition surgery for adults? I don't know. Really? Yeah, really. See, We're paying a me, big price for it. And I think, well, that, I think that it was, um, it was an, an act of stunning hubris to conduct the first trans surgery procedure. But, and it's not obvious to me at all that it's been a net social good. And but so, aren't there some people that are obviously trans who were born in one body, they feel like they're in the other body, and when they're an adult, they can make the decision. And then even from just a freedom and liberty perspective, shouldn't they have that right even if they do it and then they regret it, shouldn't they have the right to try it? It's a good question. I mean, it's a tricky one, right? Because there's all sorts of surgical enhancement procedures that are obviously, it's not obviously appropriate to make them illegal. And I don't know exactly where the cutoff line is, so to speak. And that's partly why we're having a public discussion about it. But uh, this, this, this entire argument in many ways is stated so idiotically that it almost defies description. I mean, what do you mean feel like you're in the wrong body. Well, what kind of measurement is that? Now, hang on a sec. I was gonna there are rules <laughs> for these sorts of diagnostic decisions. Mm -hmm. Okay. The rule is that you have to make a valid and reliable diagnosis. That's if you're diagnosing depression or anxiety or obsessive compulsive disorder or cancer or anything like that. There are standards that you have to abide by mm. in order to make a diagnosis, in order to fulfill the obligations of your professional college. If someone comes to you and says, I feel like I have lung cancer, that is not sufficient grounds upon which to formulate a diagnosis, much less proceed to surgery. Mm -hmm. And so the question is, what do you mean by feel? What is that? Is that an emotion? Is it a motivation? Well, is it a philosophical so, conclusion? What is so it? Let, let, me explain, let me explain to you what I mean. Let me explain to you what I mean. So I've been doing my show for about a decade. And about two or three years into doing my show, there were, you know, some stories here and there that I covered about the trans issue. Somebody who is trans reached out to me and explained to me in a very straightforward way. Yeah, look, I was born biologically female. I feel like I'm biologically male. My reality what does never that mean? lined up. Well, feel. Me, I'm just explaining what they said, and then you can respond however you'd like to respond. And they told me, as soon as I got the surgery, changed the way I dressed, changed the way I appeared. I felt phenomenally better. And so that's why, at least for me, this was the answer. Now, I think it would be incredibly arrogant for me to say back to that person, no, you shouldn't do that, or I know better than you do for yourself. Now, that's not to say that every time somebody does this, it works out well, of course, because everybody's an individual. But in some instances, that's the answer. So, you know, me mm -hmm. as a simple outsider, I just look at it and say, hey, whatever floats your boat, and if it works, it works. Look, 
most of the time, my attitude is you can go to hell in handbasket any way you choose if you're an adult. Mm -hmm. Now, the problem, this problem is complicated and compounded by the fact of the necessity of medical involvement and the ethics on the medical front. So when you asked me about how that should be regulated, my answer was I'm not exactly sure about that. Yep, Although it isn't obvious to me that the that it's obvious to me that the trans surgery enterprise has gone way too far, way too far, thousands of people too far. And I'm certain that it's harmed exponentially more people than it's helped. Mm. Now, and I also also say with regards to that story, an anecdote is not data, and it's not something that you base diagnostic decision yep. on in Fair any case. Fair enough. So, anecdotes are anecdotes. That yeah. is true. Yeah, well, well, and that's especially true when you're talking about diagnosis. Now, we're in this weird situation where with this anti-conversion bill legislation, let's say, it's now illegal, essentially, for mental health professionals, physicians as well, to talk to anyone who's young about their so-called gender identity, which is, by the way, a complete load of rubbish for all sorts of reasons, which we could also get into. It's illegal to talk to them about that unless you're going to affirm what they feel. But you can convert them surgically. So think about that. We've made talking about conversion illegal but we've made but we're promoting surgical conversion and everyone thinks that's moral and decent well i don't think so not even not in the least i think it's appalling it's mm. auschwitz level appalling there's no excuse for it and certainly on the diagnostic front there are actually rules for psychologists there and the rules are written by the, the requisite organizations like the American Psychological Association, you are required by the laws that govern your conduct as a profession to use only valid and reliable means of diagnosis, period. And among psychologists in particular, what that means is extremely well delineated. And what your client feels, that is not a valid or reliable measure. And so there's all sorts of examples of that. I mean, people who are anorexic feel that they're too fat. So why not strip the remaining flesh off them surgically? Why is that different? Because they definitely feel like it. I mean, I've had anorexic clients and I spent some time with one client, about a, six months she came to lunch with me to eat. I watched her eat and encouraged her to eat. And I did this, I did this, this uh, routine with her at one point. I had her look at her thighs. She was quite a slight woman, small, uh, you know, about five feet tall, so small woman and extraordinarily thin because she was anorexic. And I had her sit beside me and to look at her thigh and mine. And I asked her which of them was larger. And mine was like at least 50% wider, obviously, like visually, absolutely obvious. And she looked a lot, 10 minutes, I would say. And she said, well, I think she thought hers was larger. And so I said, okay, I'm gonna do something. You watch me very, very carefully to make sure that I'm not performing any trick on you. So I put a piece of paper under my leg and a piece of paper under hers. And I just traced my thigh. I put, I traced my thigh on the piece of paper first. And then I put it under hers and traced her thigh. And then I showed her the two tracings and her thighs were an inch and a half in on mine on both sides. And she probably looked at that piece of paper for 15 minutes. Now, not only did she feel that she was fat, when she looked at her own body, that's what she saw. And there's complicated reasons for that. Like anorexics don't seem to be able to look at their whole body. They look at pieces of their body. And then they can't tell if 
the musculature and the skin there is fat or if it's thin. They lose the ability to see themselves as a gestalt. And not only do they feel that they're fat, they see that. So what, is that, does that mean they're right? And if, it, if they're not right, then how is it that feeling is a valid indicator of identity? And also, by the way, feeling has never been a valid indicator of identity because your identity is not based on who you, on who you feel you are. That is, the, that is a, an, a theory of identity that is so shallow that anyone with a shred of intellectual pretension who utters it should instantly be ashamed of themselves. Two-year-olds well, think that their identities is what they feel. I mean, it's more of a default defense of freedom and liberty, people to make their own choices. Even like you said, hey, even if you're going to hell in a handbasket. So I don't think it's a crazy position. I understand people disagreeing with it, but I certainly don't think it's a crazy position. It is a crazy position. The American Psychological Association adopted it. It's a crazy position because it violates the diagnostic regulations for validity and reliability. And if the argument well, is you have the right to go to hell in a handbasket in your own manner as an adult, well, we could have a discussion about that. That still begs the question of do surgeons get to help you and still abide by their medical ethics? That's mm -hmm. a different issue. So, all right, we're, I, I, I think everybody understands your position on this now. You're, you're on the record and, and, and you fleshed it out. I will ask you, I mean- So I, to speak. I saw you talk to uh, Dave Rubin the other day and mm -hmm. um, you made a point that you don't think that gay conversion therapy should be banned, but you also conceded that you don't think it works. So why well, should it be allowed- First of all, it, I don't think it was an issue. It was just How interesting. How many people were doing conversion? Well, he said, he said, well, has anybody successfully de-gayed? And your response was like, I don't think so, but it should be allowed, which strikes me. That as wasn't like, my, uh, it's very highly unlikely that those particular words were my response, because I tend to choose my words a lot more carefully than that. So, yes, I don't believe that there isn't any evidence that people have been successfully de-gayed, although mm. I don't know the studies. And it's a tricky issue because if there are bisexuals, let's say, which we mm -hmm. seem to all agree on, then there are borderline cases. And I suspect that there are bisexuals who decide to live a straight life. Yes or no? Is that true or not, do you think? Yeah, but if they're bi, they still have the attraction to the same sex too. So that's always there. It's more well, about okay. how you Is it feel. a continuum? Is it a continuum or are these discrete categories? I think it's all a spectrum, yes. Okay, then there's going to be some people who are mostly gay, who are slightly bisexual, who decide to live a straight life. Sure, but they'll oh, always well, have that same, they'll always have some sexual attraction to the same sex, is the point. So they're yes, bi well, no matter know, how they live. Heterosexual monogamous men generally have some attraction to other women. True, that's right. So right. you could so, say so they're that, technically polygamous. Well, that's right. Polygamous. There's not, that's right. neither here nor there. A lot of this is decision and the degree to which people can decide which lifestyle, so to speak, they're going to choose. That's an open question. And all this rush to ban conversion therapy. Well, first of all, it was an absolute catastrophic mistake, not because there's something good about conversion therapy, but because banning discussion of identity with a therapist completely eviscerates the therapeutic process. All you do as a therapist is talk about someone's identity. Mm. And so if you come to me, let's say you're confused and you're young, mm -hmm. just for example, and you come to me for, for a therapeutic conversation, 
if I affirm your identity, I'm doing you a colossal disservice. First of all, you're not very happy with your identity because otherwise you wouldn't be coming to see a therapist. And second, my role as a therapist is not to affirm or to deny. It's to inquire, right? Because mm. it's very difficult for any of us to figure out who we are. And unless we're, it's possible for us to have a difficult discussion about who you are, how in the world are we going to engage in a therapeutic dialogue? If I have to just say, well, you know, you feel that way, and therefore I will be stripped of my license by my governing body if I even raise a question, then that's the end of that. Mm. And, and, what, and why did we pass this legislation? Because a handful of fundamentalists in the US were hypothetically attempting to convert gay people. How many times did that happen in the last 20 years? 100? How many times did they attempt or how many times did it work? No, attempt. Oh, attempt? I have no idea. I'm and sure neither does anyone else. Right. Mm -hmm. Right. A tiny, tiny minority of people. First of all, certainly virtually no one from the mainstream psychotherapeutic community would ever do that. And so you had a handful of fundamentalists, perhaps, who are doing this now and then in some situations. And now we've made laws everywhere that basically made it impossible. It made it impossible for everyone to have an honest conversation with any of their caregivers. Mm. And that's supposed to be an improvement. It's not an improvement. We probably decimated the psychotherapeutic enterprise and possibly the medical enterprise as well. Because you cannot ask now the kinds of questions you have to ask if you're a therapist. You know, if you came to me and you're confused about your sexuality, you're, maybe your promiscuity has gotten out of hand. I don't know what it is. Or maybe you haven't had sex with anyone for five years. You know, there's the two opposite ends of the spectrum. And that's disturbing you. We're going to have some pretty damn difficult conversations about your identity. Yeah. Mm -hmm. True. Well, now we can't. Yeah, that's very strange. I, that's that's certainly it's, not it's, not it, good. Yes, it's catastrophic, and and it will do no good whatsoever. And to to ally that with the allowance and insistence now that the surgical conversion route is both appropriate and effective, and that it'll somehow reduce suicide rates. There's absolutely no evidence whatsoever for that claim. By the way. That's so, an outright lie, that claim. Um, Dr. Peterson, I don't want to take up too much more of your time. You've been very kind with your time with me, and I really appreciate that. I guess I'll ask one more question. I'm very curious your thoughts on, um, obviously, we just had this big Supreme Court case here in the U.S. where Roe versus Wade was overturned, and now it gets thrown back to the states, and the individual states will decide what to do with abortion. And now, as we speak, at least 13 states have fully banned abortion. Um, what's your take on Roe versus Wade? Do you think it should have been upheld or do you think it should have been overturned? And what's your feelings more generally on the issue of abortion? Well, I don't think anybody regards abortion as a positive good. And so I make a terrible joke, you know, you wouldn't get one as a gift for your sister for Christmas. <laughs> it's not a good you know, it's a last-ditch attempt to stave off an impending moral catastrophe. And so I think that policy should be put in place in the broadest possible sense with the aim of lowering the overall abortion rate. And I don't think that that can be done effectively with compulsion. I'm not mm -hmm. an advocate for compulsion in the realm of policy in general. Maybe there have to be exceptions made in the case of criminals. 
but that's complicated too. But generally, if a, if a policy requires compulsion, then it's bad policy and it's counterproductive. I know I've been talking to people in Hungary, partly as a consequence of the Rowan versus Wade decision. And Hungary has instituted a lot of family-friendly policies in the last 10 years. It's been their fundamental policy focus. And one of the things they've done, which is quite interesting, is it is exempt women from paying income tax at different levels as they have children. So if you have one child, I think your income tax load goes down. I don't remember if it's 10 or 20% and so on up till four children. And at the point of having four children, if you're the mother, you are then exempt from paying income tax for the rest of your life. And that's in the context of a broad range of policies designed to support stable heterosexual monogamy and to provide a stable basis for the raising of children. And one of the consequences of that is that although abortion is legal in Hungary up to 12 weeks for a variety of reasons, they've cut the rate, the abortion rate by 40%. And, you know, thumbs up to that as far as I'm concerned. And I think that we should use, there's certain markers we should be using to, to test the health of our societies that we're not using. We use unemployment, we use inflation. Those are the two major, major economic metrics. I think we don't use it. Almost every Western country is way below replacement in terms of birth rate, and I think that's a catastrophe. Um, and I think abortion rates, another metric. Well-designed policy should aim at driving the rate down as low as possible with a minimum amount of coercive force. Now, in principle, I'm pleased because I'm a decentralist in, in a most fundamental sense with the decision to kick the, the decisions back down to the states because that allows for a, multiple, a multitude of experiments to be simultaneously run. And I've been working with thinkers on the liberal left to try to also determine what a reasonable pathway forward might be in terms of protecting minimal rights to healthy, to safe uh, and medically advised abortions. Mm. So anyways, the fundamental issue is we should, we should reconfigure family policy in, in, in a fundamental way so that, so that one of the aims is the reduction of the abortion rate because why wouldn't people want that? No one thinks mm. it's good. What was the old mantra on the Democrat side? Safe, Safe legal, legal, and rare. And rare. Right. Yeah. Well, we could concentrate on the rare part, you know, and and wouldn't that be better? And so, I we we tend to get our heads lost in the clouds in discussions like this, and I think that's a big mistake. You have to go back and do a careful analysis and try to figure out exactly what problem you're trying to solve here. Mm. Well, Dr. Jordan Peterson, I want to thank you so much for your time. You've been very generous with your time. And thank you again for, you know, jousting with me here. It's always more interesting to me when you have some competing ideologies and we could disagree here and there. And hopefully it was, hopefully you had fun. Hopefully the audience enjoyed it. And um, again, I want to thank you. Yeah, well, thanks for the invitation. I don't get an invitation very often. You know, people criticize me for not talking to lefties, although I do from time to time and a lot in my private life. But most of the reason for that is they don't talk to me. And if I'm invited, I tend to say yes, not always depends on who's asking, but 
I'm just as pleased that you decided to talk with me. And so, well, it'd be my pleasure to do it again on whatever topic you'd like to do it on. And also while we're wrapping up here, just tell everybody where they can find you, the various shows you're hosting, et cetera. Well, I suppose most people familiarize themselves with what I have to say on YouTube. Mm. I have a couple of books, 12 Rules for Life and Beyond Order. Um, They're popular books. People have found them useful if they're trying to put their lives together. And that was what they were designed for. I have an academic book called Maps of Meaning, which is heavy going. But for people who are philosophically inclined, they might find that interesting. It's hard read. YouTube is probably the best access point for people looking for something relatively straightforward. So more than welcome to do that. All right. Well, thank you very much, doctor. I really appreciate it. Good talking with you. All right, everybody. That was the one, the only Dr. Jordan Peterson. Um, Going into this interview, I had to try to figure out which things I'm going to prioritize, which things I'm going to talk about and what should we focus more on and less on because you know, it's difficult. There's so many things you want to talk to him about. There's, you know, he's, he's had so many big stories written about him. There are so many criticisms of him from the left. And, you know, I had to try to balance, how do I try to have a normal conversation, put him at ease, get myself in the flow, but also push back in certain ways. And I think I did a a pretty decent job. I brought up some of the recent controversies, which people are probably most interested in. Somehow we ended up talking about healthcare for 30 minutes. Um, there were, you know, the part on Trump, I thought was very interesting. And maybe you got some stuff out of him that maybe he's not said anywhere else yet. So it's some new stuff. So anyway, I hope people, um, enjoyed that. I certainly had a good time doing it. Um, I will say for sure, from my perspective, when you watch him on YouTube or listen to him on a podcast, um, like he's easy to listen to when you're talking directly to him, he has a very, he has a very strong presence to him. So like uh, there were definitely times I wanted to like interject and, and make a point real quick and like cut him off and say something to like clarify something. And he, he makes it so difficult to do that. They almost have to wait for an opportunity where you can hop in and then try to address the, however many things you were waiting on three, four things. So anyway, I, I hope I did a good job. I pushed back however I could, wherever I could while still keeping it cordial. Um, if you're somebody who's a, a fan of Dr. Jordan Peterson, who's watching this, who's not a, a Crystal Kyle and Friends original, I welcome you. Um, I, I assure you, all of us lefties do not have cooties. Um, we can also be very thoughtful as well. And um, yeah, I wanted to go down a path with uh, Jordan Peterson that I don't think anybody else has really gone down him with. And um, I, think, I think we succeeded. Uh, obviously, I'll leave that up to you guys. You guys tell me how you thought it was. I certainly had fun doing it. Um, There were times where it was contentious, but I thought it was contentious and cordial at the same time. And look, I definitely do it again. So anyway, love you guys. By the way, um, subscribe on Substack to get the video versions of the show a day early. It's $5 a month. And then you could also sign up for free on Substack if you don't want to pay the $5 and you get the audio version of the show. Uh, as soon as it drops a day later on Saturdays. So thank you for everybody who is a Substack member and for everybody who isn't, please consider doing it because we don't uh, take any advertiser money for this podcast. We've never spoken to an advertiser. We've never run an ad before. uh, And we're very proud of that. So thank you to all the small dollar donors. You guys build this show. And again, I hope you enjoyed this and um, talk to you next week.